Our lesson of the day is from is Psalm 8, which we sang a version of earlier. We will read it now together. Listen carefully to God's Word. This is to the director on the Gittith, a psalm by David. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, who have set Your splendor upon the heavens. From the mouth of children and nursing infants, You establish strength because of Your oppressors to silence enemy and avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, moon and stars which you have set firm, what is mortal man that you remember him, and the son of man that you visit him? You made him lower a little while than the mighty ones, and with glory and honor you crown him. You make him ruler over the works of your hands. All things you have put under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field, birds of heaven and fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. This is the Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word to us this morning. We thank You that You have promised to meet with us and we pray that You would keep Your promises to bless the reading and the preaching of Your Word, that it might go forth with power, that it might bring forth much fruit that will remain. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. In just... 17 short lines of poetry, a mere 77 Hebrew words, Psalm 8 tells the whole story of the human race. The psalm begins with children and infants. And what does it end with? It ends with a man who is given dominion over the entire created order. Psalm 8 is a tale of man's glorification, his maturation of his dominion over all that God has made. But the story of mankind is not a typical rags-to-riches story. This is a movement from glory to greater glory, from original creation to new creation, from very good to perfect and complete and mature. And so the psalm has these bookends that remind us that this is a movement from glory to greater glory. It opens and closes with the same refrain about God's glory, about His universal supremacy and His dominion. But between these two bookends that remind us of the glory of God, from the beginning to the end, right smack in the middle, that actually to the very word, the center of this psalm is the phrase, Son of Adam, or Son of Man. That is the exact center of this psalm. And I think this is on purpose because Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. Mankind is at the center of God's plan to bring all things under 
His Lordship. Everything about this psalm really points us back to Genesis 1 and God's creation of the heavens and the earth that climax with the creation of man as God's vice-regent, His steward of the world, really. But, if we read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and on into the rest of the book of Genesis, we quickly realize that even though Adam and Eve are given this incredible dominion mandate, they are given authority, they are given uh, the responsibility to take uh dominion of the world to subdue it, to fill it, to multiply it, to glorify it, they don't start off as kings and queens. They are given this commission, they are given this mandate, but they don't start off uh, in the capacity to be able to fulfill it. Think about, think about the dominion mandate. It's given to a man and his wife who are adults, okay? But they're more like babies than kings and queens and rulers of the world. They name the animals, and yes, that's that's a step toward taking dominion over the creation. But naming animals is a lot different from taming animals, right? Uh, Adam and his wife were created naked, like babies, right? Naked. They were put into God's garden where basically everything is edible. Right? Everything is spoon-fed to them, so to speak. The only thing that was withheld from them was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had promised them access to every tree, but there was a temporary prohibition on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree would bestow upon them a kingly authority and responsibility, but they were not ready for it right away. They were called to faithfully serve and keep the garden. They were they needed to grow. They needed to mature. They needed to acquire wisdom before they were ready to take on that kingly office of authority and responsibility. But Adam and Eve, of course, didn't wait. They grasped for that authority prematurely. They tried to seize glory for themselves, and they ended up only losing glory. So they were expelled from God's garden sanctuary, which was then placed under the care of angels. Cherubs with flaming swords are stationed at the entrance to the garden. And from that point on, the rest of the Old Covenant describes how creation was put under the care of angels and humanity, mankind, was like a child in the custody of guardians and tutors. Think about all the angels that we read about in the Old Testament. Angels are everywhere, appearing to patriarchs, guiding the people through the wilderness, ministering to them, bringing messages from, from God to the prophets. The angels are everywhere. The angels are the guardians and the, the tutors. Torah, the law, was given, Paul tells us, as a chaperone, a tutor um, to teach uh, Israel, to teach God's people, to help them grow up into full maturity. Torah was like, uh, the law was like their kindergarten teacher, uh, like their chaperone to tell them when to, when to rest and when to work and when to play and what to eat and what to wear, all of these things. 
they needed because they were childish. They were not ready to take on full responsibility as mature rulers of the world. But as Scripture makes clear here in Psalm 8 and in many other places, this status of being lower than the angels was only temporary. Eventually, God promised that He would redeem His people. He would reconcile them. He would provide atonement for their sins. Eventually, God would bring His people to maturity so that they could take full possession of their inheritance when they reached uh, the age of maturity. Eventually, the image bearers of God would be ready to rule as He had initially commanded them. So the entire Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is the story of God working out this plan of redemption and preparing His people for dominion and authority. Think about God's covenant with Abraham. God promised to make Abraham a great nation and to give him descendants like the stars of the sky. Of course, that means a lot, right? That means very numerous. You're going to have a really big family. That's what Abraham means, father of a great nation, right? But what do stars do? According to Genesis 1 and what we see here in Psalm 8, the symbolism of stars and sun, moon, and stars is that they rule. They govern. The sun governs the day. The moon governs the night. The stars and the heavenly bodies are symbolic of earthly rulers. So when Abraham is promised an innumerable host of stars as his descendants, he's promised that his, his family would rule the world. The covenant with David, which we heard, uh, which we read about earlier, is in 2 Samuel 7. It's also recorded in 1 Chronicles 17. This is an advancement of the Abrahamic covenant. But it's different because it's focused on one man, one individual, the Lord's anointed king who represented the entire people of God. 2 Samuel 7 calls the covenant with David the charter of humanity. And 1 Chronicles 17 refers to David as Adam exalted or Adam mankind ascended. David was the prototype of the glorified royal humanity that God's people would eventually become. He was the anointed king who represented the entire human race. Before the fullness of time had come, before the coming of Christ, God appointed David as a king and gave His people a foretaste of the glory that was to come. But David knew full well that all of these extraordinary promises would not be fulfilled in him. There was a greater Son of David, a more glorious Son of Man yet to come. And that's where Psalm 8 comes in. Psalm 8 is, in one sense, a tale of two Adams. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, David looks ahead. He catches a glimpse of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The seed of Abraham who would bring God's blessings to the nations. And the son of David and the son of God who would reign supreme as Adam 
ascended. Mankind exalted. It's been said before, and I think it's true, that Jesus is the first grown-up in history. He's the first true adult, so to speak. Because He's untainted by sin, but He's also raised from the dead and exalted over all. He who was and is fully God took on our humanity and became fully man. He is the first uh, adult. He is fully human. He was born of a woman as a vulnerable baby. And He became the second Adam, the head of a new humanity. Hebrews 2 quotes from Psalm 8 and tells us that Jesus was lower than the angels for a little while in His passion and in His suffering and His crucifixion. But then He was vindicated, glorified, and given dominion over all things. Jesus ushered in a new day, a new humanity, a new creation. The number 8, this is Psalm 8, and the number, and I think that's uh, definitely on purpose, the number 8 is associated with a new week, right? There, uh, the eighth day of the week is really the first day of a new week, okay? And so throughout Scripture, the number eight, the eighth day, is associated with resurrection, uh, with new life, with new creation. And so I think this psalm was placed in this position in the Psalter because that's what it's all about. But the number eight, if you think, well, that's just coincidental, that's, you know, you're making too much out of that. There are a lot of other clues in this psalm that are also pointing us to the same themes of new creation and the future realization of God's kingdom. Think about the title, the heading of this psalm. The heading of this psalm is according to the gittith. Okay? The word is from the word Gath. Gath uh, was the name of a Philistine city that David converted. But the word Gath means wine press or olive press. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane, which was on the Mount of Olives. It was probably a garden that had an olive press on the Mount of Olives. So, There are three psalms that are according to the Gittith. Psalm 8, Psalm 81, and Psalm 84. And if you go and you read those three psalms, these are strikingly uh, filled with celebration and with thanksgiving. And so uh, some scholars, uh, and I agree, uh, have proposed that uh, these Gittith psalms are songs of the winepress. Songs of celebration. Songs uh, that were sung maybe during some of the feasts of Israel or during the harvest time when the, the grapes would be, uh, would be pressed. Uh, they're related to wine. Wine, of course, is a kingly drink. It's associated with the coming of God's kingdom. And for uh, Epiphany Sunday, uh, it's fitting that we talk about uh, water, being, uh, talk about wine because... Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding to signify the inbreaking of God's kingdom, the transformation of the old covenant and the coming of God's kingdom. 
But Psalm 8 doesn't simply tell us that the Son of Man will have a kingdom. Psalm 8 also hints at the universal scope of God's kingdom. Okay, so we've got Psalm 8, these themes of new creation, these themes of uh, resurrection, new creation. We've got the, the wine association, uh, the royalty, the, the kingdom connections there. But then we also have at the end of this psalm, we have suggestions about the scope of the kingdom of God in the dominion of the Son of Man. This psalm closes with a list of the things that are put under the feet of the Son of Man. And what are those things? You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Seems pointless enough, right? Just name off a bunch of animals and say, yeah, that's everything, right? Well, think about the sequence of that list. There seems to be this outward trajectory from near to far, from animals easier to domesticate, those that are closer to man, maybe we could even say more like man, those uh, kind of soulish creatures that seem to have some degree of uh, intelligence, to animals that are nearly impossible to domesticate, that are further away from man, so to speak. This, uh, you have the sheep and the oxen all the way out to the unknown sea creatures, basically. Whatever, whatever it is that passes through the paths of the sea. Okay, so there is this outward expanding progression of the dominion of man over God's creatures. I think there's also another point to this, another layer uh, to this list. Scripture very commonly uses animals to symbolize people, different types, different groups of people. And so these animals in this list here very well may represent peoples and nations. God created land animals from the ground, and so they often, in Scripture, represent Israel, who is the people of the land. On the other hand, birds and fish and sea creatures usually symbolize Gentile nations. So if we read Psalm 8 through that lens, then this psalm concludes with a declaration that God has designated a royal son of man, a son of Adam, as ruler not o- not only over all of the animals and all of the um, those aspects of creation, but over all peoples, over the whole world. All the nations of the earth are going to be brought under the dominion of the Son of Man. If that seems far-fetched, if that seems crazy, then I'm in good company at least because this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, again, the two Adams here. Pay attention to the two Adam connection. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority 
and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Paul says very clearly, as uh, we see in Hebrews and other places, that Christ has been given dominion over all things, all peoples, all nations. The entire cosmos is put in subjection to Christ. It is His name that is majestic and supreme over all the earth. And the amazing, the wonder of this psalm is that God's people, you and I, the church, the people of God, share in that glory and in that dominion. In Christ, the church shares in the reign of Christ. In union with Christ, we are raised with Him. We are seated with Him at God's right hand. We share in His rule and in His glory. Jesus rules the world and conquers all His enemies through His church. Unfortunately, often Psalm 8 is applied in just the opposite way. Psalm 8 is sometimes read this way. God is infinite in majesty. His creation is glorious beyond comprehension. And so, that should make you realize just how insignificant, small, and worthless you are. You little dirt bag. You little piece of dust. What are you in the scope of things? I mean, there are entire people, there are speakers and ministries that make a living off of uh, off of this very message, you know, put up a picture of like a galaxy and say, you know, who are you? Or don't you feel don't you feel big now, right? But that's the exact opposite point of this psalm. We should not take away from this psalm that look how great God is and look how puny you are, look how worthless you are. You're nothing. Because God's glory, sometimes the logic, I think, behind that way of thinking assumes that there's only so much glory to go around. Glory is a rare and limited resource. And if you have any glory at all, then that's glory that you have stolen from God. If you have glory, then you're taking that away from God. God deserves all the glory, which means you can't have it. I think that's that maybe the subtle logic. I don't think anybody actually thinks that uh, intentionally, but I think that's often uh, a mistaken assumption behind this way of thinking. But this is this is this is completely wrong. When God bestows glory on His creation, on His people, His glory is not diminished. His glory is multiplied. Right when. Uh, when was the last time you know you saw a, a book or a movie about a king and his court was filled with all these shabby, run-down things to make him look really good, right? Glorious people always surround themselves with really ugly things so they can feel better about themselves, right? No, glorious people surround themselves with glory. They glorify other people. They share their glory not uh, because... 
shared glory is not a diminishment of their glory. It is, it is actually the multiplication of glory. And so instead of making us feel worthless and puny uh, and uh, totally insignificant, Psalm 8 is intended to give us a healthy dose of humility, yes, humility certainly, humility but wonder and thanksgiving and awe for the unfathomable grace that God has shown us. When David says, what is man that you remember? What is mortal man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you would visit him? This is an exclamation of wonder and thanksgiving. This is not uh, a pity party about uh, you know how worthless he, he is. By the way, I, I just want to point out that there is a really big difference between self-pity and humility. Sometimes the two can actually be kind of difficult uh, to distinguish, but there is actually a really big difference between self-pity and humility. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe, uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. You get that? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, having a really bad opinion of yourself, and that's real humble and spiritual. No. Humility is thinking of yourself less. On the other hand, self-pity is a false humility. It's a prideful rejection of God's good gifts. Oh, I, I can't receive... I, I could never be worthy of that. I can't receive that from someone uh, because I don't, I don't deserve it. That's the whole point, right? Now, don't get me wrong. There are many times when we feel our mortality. We feel our finitude. We feel our weakness. We feel inglorious. We are made aware uh, of all of these things through sickness, through temptations, through trials, through failures, through our sin. These are constant reminders of our finitude and our fallenness. But it is in those moments, precisely those moments, that we need we need psalms like Psalm 8 to reorient our perspective and to remind us that God made man, mortal, vulnerable man, ruler over the entire creation to share in His glory. Now, that is amazing. That should fill us with joy and with wonder and thanksgiving. And if that's not enough to leave us in awe, David tells us that God has chosen to demonstrate His strength through the weakness of infants. God puts an end to, He sabbaths His enemies through the praises of children. This seems crazy, right? But God specializes in using the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God specializes in using the foolish things of the world to shame those who think 
they are wise. Christmas, of course, highlights this theme because it's a time for us to celebrate the great mystery that God came into the world as a baby. A needy, killable baby. You may have heard uh, this uh, Christmas carol, uh, This Little Babe So Few Days Old. It was a poem written by a 16th century uh, Jesuit, Robert Southwell. Listen to a few of the the lines uh, from this, this poem. This little babe so few days old is come to rifle Satan's fold. All hell doth at his presence quake though he himself for cold doth shake. For in this weak, unarmed wise, the gates of hell he will surprise. With tears he fights and wins the field. His tiny breast stands for a shield. His battering shots are babish cries. His arrows, looks of weeping eyes. His martial ensigns, cold and need, and feeble flesh, his warrior's steed. In the incarnation, God displays His strength through weakness. He displayed His majesty in humility. He brought humanity to full maturity by coming as a baby. And God came as a baby to destroy the works of the devil. And it turns out that that is actually still a major part of his game plan. That was not just a one-time play that got ripped out of the playbook. God still uses babies to rifle Satan's fold. God's battering shots are still babish cries. Now I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but it bears repeating What the devil dreads most is covenant children fully participating in worship, declaring God's praise, hearing God's Word, singing psalms, praying our Father, reciting the Creed, feasting at the Lord's table. He's not here this morning, but I think it was Jim Jordan who once said, every time a baby sings, a demon loses its wings. And I think that's exactly right. That is exactly right. All you It's a Wonderful Life fans should get that reference. right? How does God stop His enemies? How does God silence His adversaries? Through the off-pitch, unintelligible, lisping, babbling praise of covenant children. So parents, our ultimate goal for our children is not silence and stillness, as nice as that is sometimes. The goal of training our children is so that they may fully participate in the worship of God. Now, I, I know that takes a long time. That is not an overnight thing. Don't take this uh, the wrong way. But that is the goal. That is the end goal. Sometimes we have to take our kids out of the service. Uh, sometimes... We have to use the nursery. Sometimes we have to do what we have to do. But through the example we set, through our own attitude, and through the way we teach our children, we should be 
teaching them that coming to worship is the most important thing they do all week. That that is their greatest joy. This is how our children will grow up into maturity in Christ. And, and this is how the church, the, the people of God, will begin to exercise the dominion that Scripture describes. When parents are faithful in training their children to love and worship God, that is when the church will begin once again to exercise the sort of cultural dominion that God has called us to. Now, make no mistake about it. In Christ, as members of His body, we exercise universal cosmic dominion. The church rules the world. Paul says we will judge angels. But let's face it, most of us will never personally exercise the sort of dominion described in Psalm 8. You and I won't have worldwide dominion over every corner of creation. But we do have vocations. We each have vocations to which God has called us. We do have little spheres of influence. We do have dominion over little things. And those little things are incredibly important. Those vocations to which God has called us are very significant. The kingdom of God advances slowly, almost imperceptibly at times. How does it do that? How does the kingdom of God advance primarily? Through crying babies coming to worship. Through the mundane faithfulness of raising godly children. Through the mundane faithfulness of being a faithful spouse. Of working as unto the Lord in your schoolwork and in your job. And whatever it is that God calls you to. The kingdom of God advances through prayer. Through contributing your resources to the advancement of the kingdom. The kingdom of God advances through participating in the worship and fellowship of the body of Christ. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Christ. But we see Christ. We see Christ exalted, glorified, and seated at the Father's right hand. And so we press on in hope of that day when the last enemy is defeated and Jesus hands over the kingdom to the Father and we receive our full adoptions as sons of God. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank You for the promises of Your Word. We thank You that You have given us a share in Your glory, that we who share in the sufferings of Christ on earth are promised full share in His crown in the age to come. Give us hope to persist, to persevere in the vocations to which You have called us. Fix our eyes on Christ and help us to know that we are seated with Him in heavenly places. Fill us with Your Spirit and make us faithful to You in all, all that we do. 
In Jesus' name, amen.